0: Guns don't kill people, people kill people. We hear that. You might have even said it. There's a lot of truth to it. Today, we have the Prime Minister talking with the Mayor of Toronto. Justin Trudeau on one side, John Tory on the other. And they are addressing gun violence. They plan to talk strategies. They are talking strategies to combat gun violence. We've had all kinds of shootings in Toronto. We're not seeing the the mass shootings that we have had in the United States recently, but you've still got gun violence. You've still got people losing their lives. You've had kids losing their lives. The thing that bothers me about this is the timing of it. This needs to wait Until after the federal election, because right now, a meeting like this, it may have some things going on, but but nothing's going to be declared, decided, determined. None of those good D words, and there are very few D words. But, I mean, even you listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking about this, he's not necessarily talking about gun control. Check this particular thing out.
1: The province has indicated that they will not open up the community infrastructure and recreational stream of uh, infrastructure investments until next year. Uh, we just really hope that given uh, the challenges facing communities right across uh, uh, the city of Toronto, uh, the province will take it seriously and decide to invest uh, rather than cut.
0: So what's he doing there? He's taking shots at the Conservatives, to the point you had a reporter asking him about essentially taking shots at the Conservatives, that, you know, are you running, I think the reporter's question was, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, are you running against Doug Ford, or are you running against Andrew Scheer, which I thought was genius, because that's what it's going to be turned into. But I want to take some time to start London Live today and talk about gun violence and look at potential strategies of our own because a lot of times you just throw up your hands and say yeah well well, the guns are there or well the bad guys have the guns and as much as people who are using them to hunt using them legally as much as they're going to take care of their guns they're going to lock them away from their kids they're going to do the right thing with their guns The bad guys are not, and that's the problem. And if you look at the shootings in Toronto, what's the word we keep hearing about them? Targeted. Targeted shootings. What does that mean? That means it's not somebody randomly firing into a crowd. That means it's someone who goes out with the idea in mind to shoot a specific person and then carries out that action. That's what a targeted shooting is. And in a way, you've got a number of of different scenarios here but at the same time you've got a similar problem you've got guns being used for violence you know you can count back as much time as you want to when someone had a disagreement you know count back into your schoolyard if you're old enough to remember basically the school code what happened somebody had a disagreement with somebody else what did they do I'll meet you out by the dumpster after school. I'll meet you out by the basketball court after school. I'll meet you out in the back alley after school. And what did they do? They didn't bring knives. They didn't bring guns. They punched each other a couple of times. They called it done. People gathered round and chanted, fight, fight, fight. Sometimes a teacher got involved trying to break it up. That was it. Now it is a little bit different. Now it can be a whole lot more concerning. So we are going to look at strategies to kick off the show because we're going to be joined by somebody who essentially is involved in the United States. Because I want to go into the U.S. on this a little bit. Not because of their gun issues, but because it's been front and center enough that they now have organizations that are looking at, okay, what can we do? They have organizations that are not saying, you know, we need to take all of the guns away That's what we need to do. If there were no guns, people would hit each other with swizzle sticks and that would be it. People would take out the fly swatter. Well, that's not realistic. And that's not happening. So we're going to talk with Rachel Davis in just a couple of minutes. She's with the Prevention Institute. I want you to just hear her out. Okay? That's, That's all I ask. Because we're not going to be saying, well, no guns for everyone. That's not the message. It's what are they doing in Philadelphia? It's... What are they doing in Milwaukee? Because there have been some interesting suggestions. So we'll get to those. First, let's go to our own phones. Alex joins us at 643-2222. Alex, how are you?
2: Oh, I'm good, thank you. So just uh, my little uh, view on this problem. So uh, I think the problem with the guns is that uh, we need to look at the statistics more closely and see what kind of guns are making what kind of violence. So I would make a parallel with that Traffic regulation. So if we see that the majority of the traffic deaths happen on, let's say, 401, we wouldn't be just necessarily decreasing the speed limit around the school zone from 40 to 30 uh, kilometers an hour because it's already pretty low and it's not the area of concern. So we would be probably doing something on 401, and it's not just uh, reducing speed on 401, but let's say making a better lanes arrangement, making the better lightning, making the better... Uh, driving conditions in general, and that might be a complex work, and that's what I believe the conservative view is, because they don't just, you know, uh, take a, uh, knee approach to say, oh, let's ban all the guns for the law-abiding citizen. It makes good, uh, sound, but it makes little sense. So that's why we need to focus on what kind of guns make what kind of trouble, and if it's all focused on the illegal guns, on the organized crimes, on the, on the, uh, guns, uh, um, taken from the United States we should be focusing on those channels and it's not an easy fix, it might be involving some type of work and some type of investment and it might be done over the next few years but it will be the real problem how to address, it will, it will not be just you know, smokes and mirrors just to say oh something is being done so people just relax and you know uh, see your elected officials are doing something. No, we don't need to be doing something. We need to do really something which makes a
0: difference. And you would like to see guns basically categorized as being, okay, this is for this. In other words, if you've got a, a long gun that you happen to take out to hunt deer or hunt wild turkeys or hunt quail or pheasant, that that sort of thing, okay, that that's one category. Then we put, obviously, things like automatic weapons or pistols in other categories. Is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, I'm talking about that if uh, the school zone traffic is 40 kilometers an hour, and if it's already good enough, and if we don't see much casualties around the school zone, why would we be deceiving ourselves and deceiving the public and making the regulation down to 20 kilometers an hour or 30, when most of the deaths happen on 401? That's what I mean.
0: Alex, really appreciate the call. Thank you so much bye bye five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two. If you want to weigh in, if you have any of your own ideas in terms of strategies, what needs to be done. As Alex says, yeah, we get lip service all the time. Yeah, something's being done. You know, we have the Prime Minister meeting with Toronto Mayor John Tory today. And I get the feeling that from the Prime Minister's standpoint, this is lip service. I mean, we're at the wrong time for anything to come out of the PMO. Why? Because an election is coming. And he's not going to risk turning something like gun control or even gun ideas into an election issue. That's not going to be happening. So this meeting needs to happen again. It needs to happen in December. It needs to happen in January. But we're going to look at strategies before then because there are some interesting ones being proposed in the United States. We'll get back to the phones right now, though. 519-643-2222. And we will go to Mike. Hey, Mike, how you doing?
3: Good. How are you, stuff? Pretty good. So I'm, I'm a hunter, uh, so I follow most gun control and whatnot uh, laws very closely. But I don't think gun control has anything to do with uh, cutting down on gun violence. I think a lot of the spikes in gun violence actually have to do with, uh, partially with the media, partially with liberal uh, government, both in Canada and the U.S., If you uh, look at U.S. statistics, racism actually went up quite a bit under Obama, uh, more so than under Trump, uh, because there's a lot of uh, victim culture, and when you're telling a society that these people are racist and these people are Nazis, well, I don't know, you don't look down on people for committing acts of violence against Nazis, and it creates a very big divide, whereas before we were just Canadians and Americans, I don't think there was as much... uh, and these uh, back when we were all just Canadians or Americans.
0: And where where do you think that divisiveness began then? Because uh, there will be arguments that say we were becoming less divisive and then all of a sudden we've become more divisive. You know, we were getting rid of some of those ideals and ideologies that say I'm different than you, either based on race or religion. There would be a lot of people who say, hey, we were getting better. Now I feel that we're a whole lot more divided. Where do you think that's coming from? Well,
3: look, in in the U.S., they want to give reparations to Black Americans, and that that seems really strange. Why can't they just all be Americans? In in Canada, than uh, a lot of the media and Trudeau, they're all uh, pro-Muslim, pro Muslim, uh, pro pro Black, pro Indigenous, and kind of anti white, anti Christian, anti conservative, anti the norm. Whereas I don't know, I don't think there needs to be the divisions. I, I'm a Christian. I've got friends who are Muslims, I've got friends who are black, I, it doesn't really bother me. At
0: the end of the day, we're all humans, is what we but, are, and that's that's the road we've eventually got to arrive at.
3: Well, and it's true that I think Christianity is right, otherwise I wouldn't be a Christian, but that doesn't mean I dislike people who uh, disagree with me.
0: Yeah, but I, I like wearing a Fitbit, and I'm not going to disagree with somebody who doesn't agree with but, it, it's the same thing. Yeah, well, not
3: quite the same thing, but...
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Tiny analogy. But no, Mike, you're you're right. I mean, everybody has their beliefs. Everybody has their ideals. But as long as you're accepting of everybody else, we'd run into a a lot fewer issues. And it's it's about finding a way to be accepting of everybody else. And I don't know. I I feel that there's there's a whole lot more division. And I blame the guy who's the president of the United States for a lot of it. You probably wouldn't, but I do. (laughs) No, I blame the last president. You blame the last president. For the yes. divisiveness, the divide that we've got?
3: Yes, because he made the black people into a victim society, whereas before they were just American.
0: Well, so whoever is like responsible and, and whoever anyone wants to blame, I think, I think we need to move beyond the blame and get back to realizing we're all in this together. Mike, thanks so much. Gotta I Have a great so. day. Got to move on you to a, a couple of other calls. 519-643-2222. Marilyn, we haven't talked in a while. How are you? Oh, well,
4: how are you, my friend? I'm great. I've, I've missed my number one. Well, I'm your number one fan.
0: I still appreciate that. We, You and I have to get matching T-shirts.
4: <laughs> well, you might get one. I might get send you one for, through the mail. Well, anyways, dear, it's not only the guns. It's a whole complexion of society has to change. And uh, there's too many kids come home to an empty house. There's some kids that are shown a lot of love. I'm not saying that uh, parents shouldn't work because today they have to. But they come home and uh, to an empty house. There's no when I came home from school, my mom had cookies and milk on the table for me. and then I went and changed into my my old clothes, did my practice, and then had supper and did my homework.
0: And you feel that structure is not the well, I feel the way that no
4: structure I mean, I can't judge. I'm not in the judge's seat, but there is a lot missing. it's more dear. Than just the guns. My dad had a gun. He was, uh, went out and hunt and, and, and uh, we had a gun at home because of course we lived on a hundred acre farm and there were wild animals. And, uh, you know, there was a bird that used to come down, it was an awful bird, come down and pick at the kids' heads and my head. So it was finally, my husband was blind, so finally I had to shoot the thing.
0: And you did. Well, the thing was like, had a, uh, a beak as sharp as a razor blade. Marilyn, we learn more and more about you every time we talk. I didn't know you were such a good shot. Well, I'm not. <laughs> well, it I'm worked, obviously, happy. that
4: time. Well... I tell you the truth, my husband pulled the trigger and I held the barrel <laughs> and pointed the barrel at the bird. So I'm going to be honest about it. But anyways, uh, dear, it's just str- it's the breakdown of the family.
0: Yeah, I think you're onto something right there, Marilyn. Got to move on. We've got to run away to commercial for just a second. It's great hearing your voice. We'll talk well, again it's great soon.
4: Hearing you too, my dear. You're my very, 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 very favorite. We're getting T-shirts.
0: All right. Have a great afternoon.
4: (laughs) Bye-bye, Gersh.
0: Let's take a break. 519-643-2222. If you're on hold, please remain on hold. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We're talking about some gun issues to begin with, and we are going to get to a conversation with Rachel Davis, Executive Director of the Prevention Institute, and one of the things she's going to endeavor to do is look at strategies, look at solutions, look at what cities in the U.S. are doing. This is not just about, hey, we need change. We've known that for a while. What kinds of things can make a difference? And believe it or not, there are ideas that are being implemented. We'll get to those. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. And he says on Twitter, hang on, let me get to it. He says the problem in Toronto isn't a gun problem, it's a gang problem. They need to address it on that level. We'll also get to an email from Chris in just a moment that deals with that as well. Rob, your thoughts on gun issues in 2019? Hey, Rob? We may be losing Rob. Okay, Rob, we'll give it one more try. Otherwise, you may need to call back. Have we got you? Hello, there you are. Okay, fire away. I'm here. I'd just
5: like to know how many of these guns were stolen from Canadian houses. Like, If that's the
6: problem, then we need to uh, make the laws stricter for law-abiding citizens that uh, go get properly licensed to have these guns. But if there's no registration on them or they're coming out of the States, why do we need to keep enforcing laws on people that aren't breaking the law.
0: And that's always been one of the big issues with this. In fact, one of the things that Rachel Davis is going to talk about, and again, she's the executive director of an organization called the Prevention Institute, and this is something that they're looking at, in a a very wide scope but again she'll give us examples of what cities in the u.s have started to do to make a difference one of the things she's going to talk about is the suppliers that there are basically five suppliers by their statistics supplying i think it's 90 95 percent of the guns that are being used and it's it's that supply chain that needs to be addressed. And how to do that? Well, I mean, that takes authority, that takes government, that takes policing. But, yeah, if, if you've... But, but who's at fault? If, if I all of a sudden have a gun in my house and somebody breaks in and it's not locked up and they steal it, obviously the person breaking in is at fault. But am I not... Do I not have some part of the fault for not having it properly stored? I... Rob, we may be losing you again. Rob, sorry, give us a call back, 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca because that becomes part of the question too. And Marilyn traces what we are talking about back to a root that kind of grows into almost everything that becomes a societal issue. It is a problem in the home from the beginning. I mean, if you are raised in a household with guns, it doesn't mean you are going to become someone who shoots a gun on a regular basis or wants to shoot a gun or wants to make use of a gun to settle a disagreement. That's not what it is. If you're raised properly and you respect a gun, guns have been in our society for a long time. If you're raised and you're taught how to respect, it shouldn't be an issue. You know, it's when someone says, Oh, you've you've wronged me, I'll get you and then a gun becomes involved. How many people have been at a bar, not necessarily in London, but anywhere, and you know, something breaks out and you've got a guy who will lift up his jacket and he's got a gun in his belt. In other words, yeah, this stops now and we win. You know, that kind of thing. Or else. Or just like That's been seen quite a bit anywhere. You name the city. As long as it's a big enough city, that's been seen. That happens. And this is Canada, where we don't have the Second Amendment. This is Canada, where we don't have, usually, major gun problems. Chris has emailed, and I think Chris is responding to something that Alex was talking about. If you weren't with us earlier, Alex was mentioning that, you know, we need to look at what guns are causing the severe problems, so what types, and break it down. He was equating it to looking at speed limits and things. Chris says, you can divide the guns into categories, you can also divide the people into categories. There are hunters, there are protectors and providers, there are gang members, and there are the careless and the dangerous It is the latter two groups that you have to address. Okay, well, Chris, yeah. Gang members, careless, dangerous, absolutely. But how do you do it? So often, we will get to a point where we talk about this and say, something has to be done, and you can bang your fist down on a table. Something has to be done. But what's being done? Our next guest on London Live will address that. That comes up in about seven minutes from now. Rachel Davis, the executive director of the Prevention Institute, will talk about some things that some cities in the U.S. are trying. She'll mention things like vacant lots. How can that have an impact on guns? Vacant lots? We'll find out. Next up, we've got news. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We have an awful lot to do on the show today. We're going to continue our conversation about guns. We're going to give you a chance to win Canada Russia tickets. CIBC Canada Russia series will be at Budweiser Gardens on November the 11th. That's a Monday. It is Remembrance Day. And Dale Hunter will be behind the Team Canada bench. Mark Hunter is the general manager of Team Canada this year. And tickets have gone on sale, so we're going to have an opportunity for you to win tickets. And that comes up in about 30 minutes. We'll talk with Andrea Topham, Executive Director of ATN Access for Persons with Disabilities, about a pop-up market that's become really popular. It hasn't been around that long, but it has become really popular. And we're going to look at how two organizations in the City of London have come together to create something really big and really good. The London Majors, looking to stay alive. They are in Welland tonight. We'll talk with Rup Chanderdat and... If you're looking for a nice safe house to live in, let's say that you were buying a house, what would it mean if they said, you know, this particular house that you're looking at purchasing, this house is as wind and tornado resistant as they come? You would think, well, okay, this isn't Tuscaloosa. We don't have a lot of F5s, but we do have tornadoes. We saw a tornado go through Ottawa and cause extensive damage. As long as you have the threat of a tornado, there's the threat of damage, and even high wind damage. Well, they've been doing research for years and years through the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, and in about an hour from now, we'll speak with Dave Sanding, who's the director of research with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, and they're based at Western and in Toronto, and we're going to look at their research, and then how that has been moved to a pilot project that is actually looking into wind-resistant homes. Now, this doesn't mean, should you get the alert on your phone that a tornado is in the neighborhood, that you just go, you know, I put together this uh, wind-resistant home a while ago. I'm just going to sit back on my couch and enjoy the show. No, it means you should still take all of the precautions, but your home may be able to withstand a whole lot more. And this is such an easy thing for builders to do. It would appear is being tested out. Again, it's a pilot project that maybe just maybe this becomes the way that all homes are constructed. So that's coming up in an hour from now. But if you're just joining us on London Live, my name is Mike Stubbs. Thanks so much for being here. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca anytime. We are now less than two weeks away from the start of London Knights training camp. A lot of good things going on. It's a nice day. Sun is shining. We've been talking about guns because Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Mayor of Toronto, John Tory, are talking about that today. And I don't want to talk about them because I don't believe anything's going to get solved. Not anything that becomes public anyway. The only person I would want to hear from is John Tory. But nothing's going to get resolved or nothing's going to be announced. or We're too close to an election. And the Prime Minister does not want this to become an issue. He's doing his best right now to get rid of any issues that have existed during the last four years. And then he'll drop the writ and away we go. So... That's it's. We're not going to yield anything from those discussions. So I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to find someone who maybe could yield something from discussions. And we've tracked down the Prevention Institute. Now, they're American-based, but at the same time, they have looked at gun control, gun issues, and what could be done, what is being done by some cities in the U.S., And joining us right now is Rachel Davis, and Rachel is the Executive Director of the Prevention Institute. Rachel, thank you for being here on London Live.
7: It's my pleasure.
0: Rachel, gun control is something that becomes a a very tricky, intricate topic, and countries deal with it differently. Cities sometimes deal with it differently. When you look at kind of the origin of your organization in dealing with this, where did that come out of?
7: Um, You know, I think you're right. This is a a really complex issue, and it's such an important one because obviously when you add guns into the equation, then violence becomes really lethal. Um, Clearly, issues around gun control in this country um, are very divisive. Um, and different, and even here, different locales and different states have different approaches to going um, about it. And that means, you know, some states have stricter gun control laws than others. But what we're seeing is that, you know, folks um, might be able to get guns in one state and then transport them to other states. And so what we've really seen is um, in the absence of, you know, comprehensive, uh, sensible gun laws, um, that communities are really taking action to, um, to support safety among the, the members of their communities. And so what we know, we've, we've really been focused with communities on advancing a public health approach, which is understanding um, that, you know, guns are part of the mix, What can we do to ensure that people are as safe as possible and really reduce the chances that guns will be used?
0: And that's why it's fascinating to be able to talk with you, because a lot of times, and as much as we may have different laws between Canada and the United States, we still have guns in our society. We still experience shootings in our society. Toronto, of course, has had quite a few lately we also get to a point where you just say, well, they're there. We don't really know how to get rid of them. The bad guys are the ones with the guns. You often hear that. What are you hearing from communities that makes you say, you know what, that's, that's a good idea. You know what, that could help. Is there anything that has struck you that, that makes you say, yeah, that's on to something?
7: You know, we see action in communities um, all across the country. You know, for example, um, in King County, in Washington, they've put in a lock-it-up program to really promote safe storage of guns, and that also prevents children from accessing guns. Um, In Richmond, California, there's uh, an advanced peace initiative, which really provides opportunities to men who have come out of... Um, sort of a culture of violence who, you know, get internships, participate in elder s- circles. Um, and, um, and they've really seen some, you know, reductions um, in, in homicides there as a result of that kind of wraparound support and engagement. Um, the Brady campaign um, has an initiative um, around uh, reducing bad apple gun dealers because what we know is that of gun dealers are responsible for 90% of guns that are used in crime. So if you can close those gun dealers down, then that's also been associated with lower rates um, of gun violence. And we're also starting to see some, you know, local efforts to restore vacant lots um, and clean up those vacant lots. And that's also being associated um, with reductions in gun violence. Um, On top of that, you know, communities are putting comprehensive plans in place to really address the underlying reasons for violence. Um, Milwaukee, for example, put a blueprint for peace in place, and um, that um, emergence of that um, has been associated with a three-year drop in homicides um, in Milwaukee.
0: Hmm. We're talking with Rachel Davis, the executive director of Prevention Institute, and we're looking at Ideas. We're looking at things that could make a difference when it comes to some of the violence that ends up involving guns and ends up with a lot of tragic results. You, interesting, you mentioned vacant lots and getting rid of vacant lots.
7: Yeah, that work has come out of Philadelphia, and it's it's really just cleaning them up. And I think part of the idea behind that is that maybe... Um, that those were being used as storage places for guns, um, and by cleaning them up and creating, you know, community spaces, there's both reducing access to weapons, but also increasing, you know, uh, people being able to be out in their community, um, engaging with each other, connecting with each other, and having more sort of eyes on the and so that's an example we've seen where, you know, that is associated with reductions in gun violence.
0: Now, when you hear these ideas, all of them seem to have a lot of merit to them. What's the next step in a lot of them? In, in the case of vacant lots, obviously, some cities like Philadelphia are already undertaking things, but when you look at the distribution of guns, when you look at the stats on the people supplying the guns, what is the next step ultimately to put some of these things that maybe aren't in place in place?
7: Well, we really need to look at this as a public health issue. This is a public health crisis in many places, and public health really offers um, a methodology for reducing the things that increase risk of gun violence and also increasing Uh, the protective factors that are associated with it. And when you start to look at it from that angle, you also start to get clues to what are the next steps. For example, we know most men are not violent and do not use guns against um, other people, but we also have to acknowledge the fact that most shooters are males. And what's going on there and what's that about? And we're starting to see more connections in this country, for example, between mass shooters and those who have Uh, committed uh, domestic violence, and so how do we look at the intersection of multiple forms of violence together and really address the underlying reasons why people are, you know, choosing to, um, to use guns in the first place?
0: We're talking with Prevention Institute's Executive Director Rachel Davis on London Live. A lot of times you'll hear, well, if we only got rid of all of the guns, if they just, if they went away, then we wouldn't have this problem. Would you call that impossible?
7: Well, we've got a lot of guns in this country, for example, and uh, I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that they're there. And so how do we really shift the norm to, you know, a culture of gun safety? And one in which guns are not being used against against people.
0: And uh, I guess that's uh, that's part of what probably is a, a long process. Is that something that uh, that we shouldn't be wishing for overnight? I mean, everybody wants okay. Just just tell me what needs to be done. Let's fix this. Let's stop this. This is horrible. It can't happen anymore. And if we could just have an overnight solution, that would be great. Have you ever encountered anything that you could call? an overnight solution?
7: You know, there are some new emergent um, solutions like uh, the care Violence Model or Hospital-Based Violence interruption or Intervention Strategies, which have a pretty good track record um, being put in place and being able to reduce shootings and killings within a three- to six-month period. So in places where there's high rates of homicide, these kinds of strategies can really be put in place almost immediately where you can start to see pretty quick changes. And then that creates the conditions to be able to put these longer-term strategies in place that reduce um, that future risk of needing to have that level of intervention.
0: Rachel, as a final point, does the National Rifle Association ever come up in discussions and their role?
7: Yeah, the National Rifle Association has really turned this into um, a political issue. And I think it's time that we start talking about the toll that this is really taking on communities and how are we going to insist that, you know, communities are safe and hold that up as the highest value we possibly can.
0: Rachel, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for your time today.
7: Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure.
0: Rachel Davis, executive director of the Prevention Institute. So they have basically assisted with things. They've taken a look around. They've said, okay, what are communities doing? How is it impacting things? And I want to run through some of the things that Rachel pointed to. But before we even do that, I feel like hitting my forehead. I really, can I do it? Just, I won't hit it too hard. I feel like that. And I'll tell you why in just a second. It has to deal with the Prime Minister. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We began this hour saying we were going to talk about gun issues, and we have. And we have done this because of the conversations being had today between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Mayor of Toronto, John Tory, on gun violence. And here is why I take the flat of the palm of my hand and I hit myself in the forehead. You know what announcements just come out? Again, where are we? We're closing in on an election, right? What has Prime Minister Justin Trudeau done? He has played to the stupid. That's what he's done. He has given $1.5 million to Toronto police to address the gun issues. You haven't done anything. Well, here's, here's some money. Look, look, we gave some money to combat an issue. Vote for us. That's all that is. That's, it sickens me. I really, really don't like when that stuff happens because it is playing to the stupid. So, unfortunately, that's where that came from. But I want to take a second and just repeat a couple of the things that our last guest, Rachel Davis, the executive director for the Prevention Institute, mentioned that we're actually making a difference in some communities. You know, we have two political minds meeting. I don't know what Toronto Mayor John Tory said, and I have respect for both men. I'm not sitting here taking pot shots at the Prime Minister, but I hate when this stuff happens. All it is is, it could have been a photo op. It could have been, guess what, we're giving this oversized novelty check to Toronto police so that they can combat gun violence we are the heroes helping other heroes. Give me a break. No, you're not. That's that's not fixing anything. Look at what Rachel Davis has pointed to. She pointed to Washington, their lock it up program, so that guns have to be locked up. I don't know how they police that. You know, do you get... Hi, can we see uh, your gun? Oh, it's, it's locked up. Good, see you later. I don't know if that's what they're doing, but that's their program. She also pointed to an advanced peace program in Richmond, California, which identifies men who come from violence. And I think this is great. Identifies men who come from violence and offers them help, offers them programs. She mentioned elder circles. Offers them because they're not coming from a good place. So this goes back to Marilyn's point. Where does everything originate from? Usually the home. Yeah. If you're a good parent, You can usually create a good kid. Not always, but usually. So if you aren't a good parent, if you do not create a good home, chances are mm, there could be some issues. So this identifies that and then attempts to address it. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. The Brady campaign, looking at gun dealers, and Rachel pointed to the statistic. 5% of gun dealers are responsible for 90% of the guns that are used in crime address those gun dealers. That's the Brady campaign. In Philadelphia, they're cleaning up vacant lots where some guns are being hidden, stored, dealt with, dealt, period. And then in Milwaukee, they've got what they call a blueprint for peace, which maybe we can look into on a future show, but it has seen a three-year drop in homicides. So there's examples of things that are actually being done. Not, oh, just a second, I'll take out my wallet here. Just, just a minute. <clears throat> Remember, we're the liberal government and we're taking out our wallets. Here you go. Uh, let me count this out. One, two, three, four, five. $1.5 million. There you go. Fix the gun problem. See you later. I don't like it. We'll tell you what's ahead on London Live when we return. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Final word on the gun issue, at least for today, because this will come up again, goes to Matt. Matt, we've got about 60 seconds, but they're all yours.
5: Well, I'll I'll try and keep it quick.
0: (laughs) Um, I kind of look
5: at the gun issue. Uh, Myself in Canada is completely different from the United States. Um, What I see is uh, the pandering of Justin Trudeau and uh, John Tory in Toronto. Um, it's more of a legal gun issue there. I have my restricted license as well. So the way I look at it is uh, kind of like drinking and driving. Um, we have multiple fatalities pretty much almost every day from that, but we don't ban alcohol in this province. But uh, um, I have no issue with the states, like having the NRA, given a uh, hand a gun license, what we do have in Canada. I have no problem with... Uh, Establishing even a gun license to my license, so registering my guns to my specific license would be fine. Um, what I did have an issue with was when they required a paper license for each specific firearm owned. Um, then it became complicated because I couldn't just hand them a single license. I became a criminal if I didn't have the proper paperwork in order. Um, so if you're hunting, uh, say you're up north hunting deer and you have the wrong piece of paper, well, now you're, you're a felon. Um, but other than that, um, in the States, it, it is quite different. Um, I know you, you you basically just need to be 18 years of age in a lot of the states to, to acquire any firearm, and they do have high-capacity magazines as well.
0: Um, and you can buy those in Dick's, you can buy those in oh, Walmart, you can buy those just about anywhere.
5: Yeah, pretty much, like, your standard AR in Canada comes with a five-round clip. In the States, it comes with
0: just 30-round clip. Like, it's just,
5: you know, complete difference. Like, it's apples to oranges. Like it's, And so, like, that's where I kind of get a little flustered with the media in Canada because we, we see the American media with it, but what we actually have in place in Canada is completely different. And there's a lot of illegal flow across, and a lot of it's coming, like, through the basically across, like, the St. Clair River and down near the St. Lawrence where they can take a boat at night and, you know, be across and be done with it and, uh, you know, um, and it's, uh, the illegal aspect. So I, I would agree with, like, a 10-year, uh, you know, if you're not licensed to a firearm, like, lock them up for 10 years or make stricter penalties that way. Yeah. It's Matt, we, up, uh,
0: we got yeah, to run for stuff. news, but I love what you right. said about drinking and driving, and I love the idea of 10 years. Thanks for the call. Yep, and there's somebody who owns a restricted firearm but does it legally the drinking and driving aspect yeah you don't ban alcohol it does come from how people are taught to use things all right we've got news coming up next a lot still ahead on london live this is global news radio 980 cfpl We are going to speak with Andrea Topham, Executive Director of ATN Access for Persons with Disabilities. We're going to be talking about a pop-up market that's been really popular. It's only been in existence a couple of weeks at 630 Dundas, right at the Old East Village Grocer. But what we want to look at is two entities in this city coming together to make this happen. And we'll have details for you. First, we want to give you a chance to win two tickets to go to the Canada-Russia Series. The game that will be played in London on November the 11th of 2019. It is a Monday. This is something that has been happening for years and years and years. It's actually been happening since 2003. And what it does is it gives... Any of the eyes that are going to be used to help create the world junior team that Canada will have or that Russia will have, it gives them an opportunity to watch eligible players in a series and... Canada breaks itself up into Team OHL, Team QMJHL, and Team Western Hockey League. And a touring Russian team comes through and plays two games against the Quebec League, two games against Ontario team, or the Team OHL, and two games against Team WHL. So... One of those games is going to happen here. The other will happen in Kitchener. But one of them is going to happen here on November the 11th. And you have a chance to win tickets to go to that game. Monday, November the 11th, 2019 at Budweiser Gardens. Dale Hunter will be behind the bench. Mark Hunter is the general manager of Team Canada this year. And here's all you need to do. As I mentioned, this series has been taking place since 2003. So, the question, the skill-testing question, in order to win the tickets, and you have to call in with the right answer, 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. We're about to say go. Skill-testing question is this. In the Canada-Russia series, where was the first game of the series played? First ever game. Where was that played in 2003? 519-643-2222. Get it right? And you could be off to this game as Canada will play a touring team of Russian stars. And if you go back to that very first one or the very first few series, Russia didn't like to give away any secrets. So they wouldn't send their best players. They wouldn't send their best team. And they ended up getting stomped a few times. And eventually, uh, they started sending better players. And it's been a great series since then. But at first, yeah, that first game was 7-1. That was the final. And this is the game that if you can tell us where it happened in 2003, you could be going this year. Brad... Where did the game take place in 2003 to kick off the entire Canada-Russia series? London, Ontario. London, Ontario is exactly right. Congratulations. What are you doing on November the 11th? Going to a hockey game. You're going to a hockey game. Brad, we'll get some information from you. Hang on just a second. London, Ontario. Happened right here at Budweiser Gardens. I think Ben Eager, remember he played for the Oshawa Generals? He had a hat trick And Canada, or Team OHL, won 7-1. Corey Perry played in the game. Jeff Carter played in the game. It was a great, great team. And now, well, we'll see who gets to play in 2019. Brad will get to see them play right up close. If you want to get up close and right next to something that has been a big success, kind of like a 7-1 beating Team Russia success so far, and it hasn't been in existence very long— You want to get to 630 Dundas Street on Tuesdays and take a look at your calendar. Uh, This is Tuesday. Tuesday from 4 o'clock until 7 o'clock because there is a pop-up market that has happened at the Old East Village Grocer, and it will be there tonight. But this has much more of a story to it. And here to help us out with that story is Andrea Topham, who has been nice enough to join us on her vacation. Andrea is the executive director with ATN for Access access for Persons with Disabilities. And Andrea, it is great to have you on London Live to talk pop-up markets. How are things going today?
8: I'm fantastic, Mike. How are you doing?
0: Well, I'm fascinated to know a little bit more about this. When you hear pop-up market, it brings to mind some things, but maybe it's best just to have you describe what this is.
8: Yeah, sure thing. Um, Well, we've kind of had high hopes. Uh, for this project for a while and we've been talking since late winter what we've been able to do is we are partnering with Urban Roots to be able to bring uh, fresh and locally grown produce to the Old East Village
0: okay and that's been going along pretty well hasn't it
8: it's been going great I mean as you said we thought it was going to be kind of small but we've run it for two weeks now and uh, we've sold out every time so we're just going to keep scaling it up um you know, from three years of conversations with customers in the Old East uh, Village Grocer, we know that the number one request has been more local and uh, more organic, but it's not really easy for us to do, uh, to find the time to source these products. Um, I Primarily, what we are is a skills training program, and that's where we have to spend uh, our resources, so sourcing uh, local and organic isn't always easy for us and enter urban roots
0: and here we go. So we've got two organizations basically coming together. And can you tell us a little bit about how that has kind of come to be?
8: Yeah, I mean I think it's absolutely amazing when you find two mission or two organizations whose missions align so beautifully. Um, As I said, we've been working out the details on this for a while, um, and we really feel that it's true collective impact. Um, You know, we can work with Urban Roots to solve a problem that neither one of us really have the resources to solve on our own. Their core mandate is to to grow... uh, locally, um, in uh, using vacant land um, within the city, uh, but they don't necessarily always have the opportunities to sell their produce around the city, so we came together and it just it just seemed to fit really well
0: now, one other thing that we really need to know about is kind of how things work. You mentioned you offer opportunities that a lot of people in this city need but can't get in a lot of places. So take us through that aspect of this.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Old Grocer Grocery is a social enterprise, and uh, we're a full-service grocery store, but we're just a little bit smaller. Um, and our main mission, really, is to provide training opportunities for folks with barriers to employment. So, folks come in and they learn um, about how to work in a retail setting, and it's really more about the soft skills and the relationship building, and they also get an opportunity for some um, meaningful community inclusion that they may not have had before.
0: And that's something that must be pretty wild to watch. Can you can you kind of highlight what that means to the individuals who are able to do it?
8: Absolutely. I mean, for some of these folks, this is the first time they've ever had any real employment opportunity. And um, we get this amazing opportunity to watch these individuals grow. And from there, we're able to use the skills that or they're able to use the skills that they've built to uh to put on their resumes and to go on to greater employment and, um, with local employers across the city. You know, at a time when we are looking at a, a, a talent shortage in the city, I think it's important for employers to look at creative and unique ways to fill some of their vacancies. And I think that our population is, is well-positioned to help local employers with that.
0: If anybody was interested in finding out more, how do they do it?
8: They can go on our website at theoldeastvillage.ca or uh, at atn.ca. ATN is the charity that owns the Old East Village. Um, and uh, there's contact information on the website about all of the programs and services that we have to offer.
0: And as far as the market goes, when, obviously it's open pretty regularly, but as far as the, the pop-up, when does that pop up?
8: Yeah, our groceries open seven days a week, uh, but the pop-up pops up every Tuesday starting at uh, 4 p.m., and it runs uh, until 7 or until we sell out, which we seem to be doing quite regularly.
0: (laughs) Andrea, all the best. Thank you for being a part of such a special initiative in the city.
8: Thank you so much, Mike.
0: Andrea Topham, Executive Director of ATN Access for Persons with Disabilities. So... You see a need, you find people who are able to identify the need, and then mobilize to help that to come together. I mean, this, this is a great thing. We're looking for, you know, or we're looking at persons with disabilities who, as Andrea mentioned, may not have had any kind of employment, any kind of employment. Now, all of a sudden, yes, they get employment. That resume gets built. They find either other employment or stay with that employment. I mean, it's great. Plus, the Old East Village has an excellent pop-up market. And as Andrea has pointed out, they keep selling out. So, it opens today at 4 o'clock, yet again, every Tuesday, 4 to 7. But you don't want to say, yeah, well, we have until 7 o'clock. They have been actually running out of what they're selling, the produce. So make sure that you get there early if you're heading there today. 6.30 Dundas in London. We'll take a break. While that's happening in London, a few other individuals are leaving London today. They're going to Welland. Why would they be going to Welland when they could be here in London? Actually, they they have to be in Welland. They play a game there tonight. The London Majors will take on one of the best names in baseball. The Welland Jackfish. That's just a good name. Maybe I'm biased. That's my son's name, without the fish part. But they will play the Welland Jackfish tonight in a game that they must win. We'll talk with Rupe Chanderdat next on London Live, the manager of the London Majors. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. There is nothing in sports quite like a must- Win. You get a test. You get a test of you've got to win or your season ends. All the fun you've been having, all the dreams you had at the start when everybody was zero and zero, all that goes away. The London Majors fell behind three games to none to the Welland Jackfish in their first round series. But on Sunday, they picked up a victory over Welland in London. Tonight, they go to Welland with the hope of forcing a game six tomorrow at Labatt Park. So win one more, and then all of a sudden, all you have to do is win at home, and you're in a one-win, winner-take-all. That's that's it. This this doesn't sound all that complicated. As a matter of fact, it it sounds very doable. It's crazy how playoff series can work. The man who will be helping to pull some of the strings in order to try and make this happen tonight is the manager of the London Majors, Roop Chanderdat, and he joins us right now on London Live. Roop, some very positive feelings after game number four in London and a big win on Sunday. How's everybody doing? You know what? Everyone's positive.
6: Uh, we've just taken the attitude it's just play one game. You know, we're not even focused on series, what it's at. I mean, when you're in this type of situation, just the focus is on, you know, let's have fun, let's stay focused and just uh, play the one game that's in front of us right now.
0: Baseball managers, when they do not win, are like any managers and coaches. You'll go home and that game will replay itself over and over and over in your mind. What was it that Welland did in the first three games that allowed them to jump out to the 3 nothing lead? You know what? It's... Uh,
6: Some timely hitting, you know, game three, our first game at home, you know, we, you know, our starter um, left the game with no runs, run our first and third, you know, we brought in our closer, John Fitzsimmons hasn't given up a run all year with one out, you know, hasn't even given up back to back hits, Has you know, been dominant, you know, 223 innings. And, you know, he gives up a single to score one and then a, a home run to give him the lead, you know, so you kind of like you said you play that back in your head but there's nothing you can do you have a loaded gun in the bullpen you got to do that and then the two games in well and you know it came down to the same thing their defense was stellar their center fielder ashbury heat you know he was making plays and their shortstop soriano we hit the ball hard you know it's one of those if you're there you go wow it's going to drop eventually it didn't drop and uh you know they took the lead they got better pitching in game 2 than we did but uh all in all you know we've we've been in every game we were hitting the ball well uh it was good to see the offense rewarded, you know, um, in game four. And we're looking, like I said, we're looking at game five, just going in there and just trying to do what we can, come out with a win.
0: Rube at manager of the London Majors, they are in Welland tonight. It is a must-win to continue in the Intercounty Baseball League playoffs, but it was a must-win on Sunday, and you guys scored 11 runs. Like you say, the, the bats get going. How... How key is that in a series where if you come off feeling good, if if you come off and and feel that that you've been able to to get some good swings, to put people on base, to get people across the plate, all those good things. How does that carry through to the next game?
6: You know what? It's huge. I mean, that was off layer of the he's there, he's their staff. You know, and uh, that was huge. It gives the guys confidence, as you know in sports, a lot of it's confidence, and the boys have confidence offensively going into this game tonight. Uh, you know, knowing they can hit and they feel good about themselves. You always know you can hit. You feel like you can hit. But it's nice knowing, you know what, you've you had some production last game and you're confident going into the next game with that that mindset.
0: What do you do with your pitching tonight?
6: You know, tonight it's uh it's for me it's simple. You know, borges we've got uh you know one, two, three. borges is gonna start tonight. He's been our, you know, number two pitcher or 1B all year, so he's going tonight. Uh, so we're, we're excited by that, and uh, you know what? that will leave, leave Boone and Fitzsimmons, you know, come out of the bullpen if we need for tonight.
0: Well, Roop, we wish you the best of luck. Go and get this one and bring the series back to London. Thanks for having me. Roop Chanderdat, manager of the London Majors. They will be in action tonight in Welland, and if they win, they're back at it tomorrow night in London. And then it's just one more win, and then it's a game seven. It's a whole lot harder to carry that out, of course. We've got Blue Jays baseball for you tonight on Global News Radio 980 FPL. And the Jays, they're having a good time. This is a team that all of a sudden is very young. They have brought up Bo Bichette. And if he keeps this up, he's a superstar. Now, you can't expect him to, but he was four for six last night. The Jays scored 19 runs. And tonight they get to play the same team again. The odds of scoring 19 runs tonight, not as good because they're up against a pitcher named Lance Lynn. And he's one win behind the leaders in Major League Baseball. Justin Verlander, who used to play for the Tigers, is one of those guys. So, yeah, the odds of scoring 19, not as good tonight. But the Jays are playing some exciting baseball. And they're winning some baseball games. This might not be that long a rebuild for them. Have you had a chance to hear it all from Bianca Andreescu? She is somebody to keep your eye on as well. We didn't get a chance to talk about her yesterday, but won the Rogers Cup. And the thing that everybody's making a big deal about, and rightly so, is a very Canadian move. Bianca Andreescu is in the final of the Rogers Cup. No Canadian female tennis player had won the event for 50 years. Bianca's 19, just turned 19, and she's playing against Serena Williams. Make the argument she's the best tennis player on the women's side ever. You know, you can, you can say Martina Navratilova, you can say Billie Jean King. It, it's one of those arguments that you can't win. But really, Serena Williams, she's amazing. Serena Williams has to pull out because of a bad back. It would have been no shock to anyone if a 19-year-old had found that out and had simply run around the court screaming and raising their hands and looking for a Canadian flag. You have become the first Canadian female tennis player to win the event in 50 years. Woo! That's what it could have been. Instead, Bianca went over and knelt down and took Serena Williams' hand. And talked to her and made sure she was okay. And Serena actually addressed it after the match. And said, you know what my favorite part about this entire tournament was? That. I was feeling so low. Bianca came over. She goes, I'm a big fan of hers. I was a big fan before, even bigger fan, and made her feel better. Didn't run around celebrating. Just, you know, it's it's one of those things where she probably felt, she even used the word weird to describe how she felt winning the championship with someone having to retire from the match. But she could have celebrated. She's 19. What would any of us have done at 19? This... Person is mature. This person is an absolute bulldog on the court. She's fun to watch. Somebody else said she is what tennis needs to be. It's going to be fun to watch. Let's take a break for news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We haven't had a chance to get to this story just yet. And I don't want to get too old Maybe later in the week, we can open up the phones on this, but here it is. There are two guys, because I've, maybe I should preface this differently. I've never understood the sharing of really valuable stuff. You know, I, I remember a long time ago, shopping with my grandfather and my cousin. And my grandfather had built up a whole bunch of Canadian tire money. And so we went into Canadian Tire, because that's the only place that would take Canadian Tire money. And we started looking around. He said, you guys can go and spend. And he had given us the bills, and we were small enough to be looking down thinking we were zillionaires. Because we were thinking this was, you know, instead of five cents, it looked like five dollars, and ten cents looked like ten. We had, we had all this money. We couldn't believe it. And being slightly older... And obviously, a horrible, selfish person. I hope I've become a better guy. I found this croquet set. I think I was about six. And my cousin would have been about four. And I found this croquet set. And I really wanted it. But we didn't have enough money for that and something else. So I tried to convince my cousin that we could share it. I'll have it. And then then you can take it. We lived eight hours apart at the time. But when you're six and four, that's technicality so my grandfather ended up stepping in saying you know what Uh, i don't think so and we went on our merry way and i don't remember what happened after that but hopefully i I learned and grew from that experience but the point is you can't have something of value like a croquet set and share it that's not going to work i never understand relationships Where two people are in a relationship and they get a dog. Oh, you guys are going to be together forever? Absolutely. We've been together for three weeks now. And we're getting a dog. Uh, what, What happens if you guys do go your separate ways? What happens to the dog? Nobody thinks that far ahead. What happens to the dog? I don't understand that. So... I didn't understand this necessarily either, but you had a dispute that began way back in 2014 between two individuals in Montreal who shared Montreal Canadiens season tickets. They had shared them for 19 years, and basically they were transferred from the Forum to the Bell Centre, and they were married to, believe it or not, two sisters when they obtained the tickets. There was a marriage breakup. One guy wanted the other guy to buy him out. The other guy didn't want to, so the fight began. In other words, they weren't going to share the tickets anymore, so who was going to get the tickets? A Quebec superior court has had to rule on this and has given 45, or I guess hasn't given, has determined that forty-five thousand dollars need to be paid needs to be paid to the man who was deprived of the tickets, and I don't know they, whether they can work this out. They're going to appeal. They're, it's going to continue, but they're at they're at fault for this on their own. You're sharing the tickets. You've got to go in with kind of a prenuptial agreement, a, a pre-ticket buying agreement. You got to figure that out. It's like a pre-pet agreement. You've got to have one of those. Has anybody else run into any issues with shared stuff? If you've been someone who got into a relationship with somebody else and got a dog and then broke up, I'd love to know that story. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You don't have to give your name. We won't out you. But I'd love to know what ha- who got the dog. Do you, do you have to take it on weekends? Do you, do you trade back and forth? What if one of you moves to Saskatchewan? Things can happen. I would love to know. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. If you have ever wanted to live in a very secure home, we have a way for you to do it. A home that's even more secure than maybe the one that you live in right now, because it is as wind resistant as a home can possibly be. Dave Sandink is set to join us. Dave is the director of... Research for the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction at Western and also based in Toronto. And he'll join us next on London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We don't have a lot of major tornadoes that touch down around here, but we do have some every once in a while. We're lucky enough that they don't usually touch cities. You'll hear about one, and then we'll have the Ministry of the Environment go out and investigate it, and they will say, yes, an F1 tornado did in fact touch down in this empty field, and two trees were felled. So we're lucky that way. But that doesn't mean that one day a tornado that's a little bit bigger, or even an F1 tornado, doesn't go through a subdivision. Well, It just so happens that there is a pilot project that is being done in a subdivision in southeast St. Thomas. And that is being handled by Doug Terry Homes Limited. They've put together 100 homes, and they have done so using research that has come out of the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction. In other words, really, really wind-resistant homes. And you would think, okay, well... If you're putting together a really, really wind-resistant home, how really, really big is the price going to be? We'll talk about that in just a little bit, but let's kind of get some background on how this has been going on. Because this isn't something that started last week or last year. This is something that has been... A long time in the making, from our understanding. Dave Sanding is the Director of Research with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction. They, of course, are based out of Western, also based out of Toronto. Dave, how are things going?
1: Things are going very
0: well. You have something where, you know, sometimes a lot of work will mean, oh, this this has been weeks, this this has been months of preparation. You actually have something that has been... Would it be years and years and years of preparation?
1: Yeah, right. Uh, so this, uh, the work on designing buildings for, or designing homes for high wind and tornadoes has been going on for several years, uh, almost uh, 20 years, at uh, Western University and uh, with collaborations with our organization, the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction. Um, and so this is a significant development that a builder has decided to uh, consider the measures and figure out a way to address the the construction vulnerabilities that have been identified with this research in in a development.
0: Now, when we talk about wind-resistant homes, we don't always think of southwestern Ontario as being a place that needs wind-resistant homes. We don't have F5 tornadoes going through. Uh, What is it about this area that that is going to be useful in researching and looking at how this plays out?
1: Well, um, southern Ontario, you're right, doesn't get a lot of major tornadoes, but we do get uh, tornadoes, and we're considered to be an area that's prone to tornadoes, Um, for example, in the National Building Code. Uh, and we do get uh, F0, F1, uh, sorry, EF0, EF1, EF2 tornadoes uh, periodically, all the way up to, to EF4. Um, the measures that are incorporated in, into the buildings in Saint Thomas are designed for up to EF2 tornadoes, um, and so the vast majority of tornadoes we get are EF2 or less. Uh, So by incorporating these measures, we're essentially addressing the vulnerabilities uh, for the vast majority of high wind and tornado events in in southern Ontario.
0: We always hear, Dan, that if there is high wind, if there is a tornado risk, and we had a tornado warning not too long ago, that you go downstairs, you you go under a set of stairs, I think it's the northeast corner of the house that you go to, so with a house like this, what would they be designed to withstand, designed to do?
1: So homeowners should still practice all of the normal precautions that uh, are required for tornado events. Um, but what uh, the measures will do is reduce the likelihood of major damage to the building uh, during high wind and, and tornado events. And one of the biggest vulnerabilities that has been identified uh, over many years of, of work on high wind, both in Canada and the U.S., and the post-tornado damage investigations that have been done by the researchers at Western for, for several years, is the connection of the roof to the wall of the structure. And uh, so that's been found as a, as a major vulnerable point. And when you have a tornado event that removes sections of the roof, what happens is those sections of the roof fly around in the wind and they hit other buildings. And when you hit a building and you knock a hole in the wall or uh, knock out a window, you increase the chance that that other building will then lose its uh, roof or parts of its roof as well, which sort of creates a domino effect. So the home is not necessarily going to withstand all types of damage, and homeowners still need to, to practice all the normal precautions that they would uh, during a tornado warning event. Um, but the measures uh, will are designed to reduce the risk that pieces of the building will come off and hit other buildings and thereby reduce the overall damage in the neighborhood.
0: We're talking with Dan Sanding, Director of Research with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, and we're looking at wind-resistant homes. And some of these are going to be tested not too far from London in St. Thomas, as Doug Terry Homes has... Put basically together a 100 homes in a subdivision in the southeast part of St. Thomas. It winds up being a pilot project. So you mentioned years and years of research have gone into this. Would we notice anything if you were seeing a home built using right. this? Would, would you look and go, well, that's, that's a different kind of structure there. Look, look at what they're doing there. Or would it be really subtle?
1: It's pretty subtle. It's pretty subtle. The, the types of measures that we focused on in this case were um, the, the idea of the pilot is to identify the, the sort of the easiest and least expensive way uh, to mitigate damage. So you can, you can design buildings um, with, say, hip roofs and that sort of thing, and that reduces damage. In this case, um, the measures are very subtle. We're talking about additional screws and connectors and longer nails um that are all placed behind the drywall underneath the shingles um so the homeowner would not uh, notice it unless they were really looking for it and uh, maybe redoing their roof or something like that
0: okay and that's something that uh that makes it sound like it would at least be you know, affordable or, or wouldn't add a lot of cost to the home if it's not like you. Well, we're bringing in these massive struts and we're going to Definitely. put them. It doesn't sound like you're doing anything like that. So, cost wise, does it change much?
1: Yeah. So the cost is is very low uh, compared to the price of uh, of constructing a new building. Uh, we're talking about you know a few hundred dollars um, for these measures, under five hundred dollars, um, and that's mostly the time required by the installers, the framers. Um, and a small cost for the materials themselves. And that's really the, the primary aim, is to address the most significant vulnerabilities uh, w- with the least uh, additional cost.
0: Is it true that this project was once known or might still be known as the Three Little Pigs Project?
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the the overall project at, uh, at Western is the Three Little Pigs Project. Uh, there, are also, there are several components to it. There's a lab, um, a full-scale testing facility, uh with a different name the 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 project was christened as the three little pigs project uh, many years ago um but yeah but the name is stuck
0: that's outstanding well it's it is a tremendous thing to look at so while you're playing through this pilot project are you watching the weather forecast and and hoping for high wind gusts and things like <laughs> that do you, do you want things to get really windy for a few years
1: well, yeah, I mean, we never never hope for something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, should something come through, uh, the, the researchers at Western, uh, led by uh, Professor Greg Kopp there, would certainly uh, be very, very interested in how the wind would uh, affect uh, these buildings.
0: And then what will you do after a period of time in order to assess what has happened in this project?
1: Well, so the, the primary interest in this project is understanding um, how the builders and the, the people who actually build the house, the framers, you know, what do they think of the measures? Um, uh, are they hard to install? Uh, is there something that makes it sort of technically difficult Do you know, is it uh, the studs get in the way when you're trying to install the screws, uh, that sort of thing? It's really to get down into the very detailed sort of nitty-gritty details uh, of installing these measures so we're moving sort of from an academic context where you have a lab and you have perfect conditions to on the ground building houses people in the field uh, the professional professionals who actually build the houses uh, what are their thoughts on on the cost and, and difficulty of installing these measures uh, with the hope that uh, what's being done by Doug Terry uh, are going to be something that we can uh, promote and, and per, perhaps scale up uh, to other parts of Ontario and in Canada.
0: If you're a homeowner, no doubt your insurance company would love to hear exactly what you are doing and anything that makes a house more intact, makes it safer. Uh, yeah, I think they'd enjoy that.
1: Oh, for sure. They, they definitely like that. We, we do work directly with the insurance industry, and uh, this is a project they're very interested in, and uh, we're hoping uh, they'd also pursue similar measures uh, during, for example, a rebuilds. Uh, after-fire events and that and that sort of thing.
0: Fantastic. Well, Dan, thank you so much for describing all of this to us. Any idea how long you plan to go before the data is compiled and analyzed?
1: Uh, well, hopefully we'll have some uh, data being collected right now by, for example, researchers at uh, Western University, um, and we'll be doing some interviewing and, and discussing of the measures with, uh, with the framers and that sort of thing over the coming uh, months, and uh, so we should have some feedback uh, pretty soon.
0: Good stuff. Dan, thanks again for the time today. Uh, No problem.
1: Thanks very much for your interest.
0: Dan Sanding, Director of Research for the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction at Western and also based out of Toronto. Before we close out the show, why a good percentage of young people between the ages of 22 and 37? Can I call someone who's 37 young? I hope I can. Uh, Why people between the ages of 22 and 37 are traveling. Why do you think that is? See the world? Broaden their horizons? No. That's silly. I'll tell you why they are traveling next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We have news coming up in five minutes from now. British travel e-tailer. That's a thing now. An e-tailer. Jet Cost put together a poll. AT&T added another element to this store of data. And here's what they found. They polled a whole lot of people. 4,000 people between the ages of 22 and 37. So they called these people millennials. I don't know. If you're 37, are you a millennial? You're an old millennial, aren't you? But you're still a young person. So they looked at all of this data, and they found that one in five millennials, one in five of the people between the ages of 22 and 37, traveled for a very specific reason. You ready for this? What would it be? Again, see new places? No. Broaden horizons? No. Get away from the stress of life? No. Social media? I, uh, I all of a sudden don't feel so well. Social media, you do it so you can brag. That's what you're doing. You're traveling to brag. Because that's what it is. That's what most social media is. Bragging. Facebook picture, look at me here. That's bragging. Look at where I am now, and you're not. Bragging. Look at me now. Bragging. Yeah, uh, that's not healthy. That's making me feel a little queasy. One in five, that's a pretty decent percentage. That's 20% say, in fact, 21% say taking photos for social media was the main reason to go on vacation. Wow. That's awful. Quick, find a story that's more awful than that. Oh, good. Here's one. Here's a young driver who was given a, a vehicle by his parents. He wanted a vehicle for his birthday, or maybe just because he wanted one. Uh, He was given a BMW. A BMW was pushed into a river this week by this person. Why is that? He wanted a Jaguar. I'm not making it up. He didn't want the BMW. You want the BMW. You want anything. It's a free car. Give me a break. All right. That at least is a worse story than the one about taking pictures to go on vacation. It's not what it's about, people. News is coming up next. Thanks for joining us today. This is Global News Radio 980 CFBL.